BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. We interrupt this broadcast before it was history. It was news. It appears as though something has happened in the motor. I said, those are shots. Man on the moon. We copy it down, Eagle. I shall resign the presidency effective at noon tomorrow. I'm Bill Curtis. It's been said that breaking news becomes the first draft of history. What's overlooked is how deeply we relied on broadcast journalists who met the adrenalized demands of those moments, often with courage and daring. Broadcast journalism has a simple, sober purpose, to keep the public informed through the best and worst of times. But the consequence of that labor is profound. As legendary newsman Walter Cronkite wrote, the free press is the central nervous system of a democratic society. No true democracy can exist without it. History has borne out that wisdom. But before it was history, it was news. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. President's car is now turning on to Elm Street. We got in downtown Dallas, and the reception was euphoric. Unbelievable. He wanted to make a point, I think, when, when he took the bubble top off the limousine. I said, those are shots. Stop the bus. President Kennedy, according to the Associated Press, and Texas Governor John Connolly were shot from ambush today in Dallas, Texas, Nobody knew what happened. Are we going to survive this? We didn't think it could ever happen in Dallas. The flash, apparently official, President Kennedy died at 1 p.m. Central Standard Time. I'm Brian Williams. November 22nd, 1963 was a sparkling sunny day in Dallas, Texas, where President John F. Kennedy was traveling to shore up support in his vice president's home state for their upcoming re-election campaign. Texas was a swing state, and feelings about the president ran high in both directions. But that was just politics as usual, or so it seemed to Gary DeLong, then a young newscaster at Dallas radio station KLIF. I think there were two 
different ads uh, on the front pages of the Dallas Times Herald and the Dallas Morning News. I remember reading the ad in the uh, Dallas Morning News said, welcome, Mr. President, we love you. And I think there was something like 11 organizations that were against him coming to Dallas. They said he wasn't popular and they didn't want him there and they disagreed. One of them was the John Birch Society, but we knew our, what our assignments were. And so we just went about our daily business. I, I made the police department every morning, real early, about 5.30 or 6 a.m. And uh, we knew it was going to happen, but we didn't anticipate any violence or anything like that, even though there's always that uh, possibility when you have dissidents like we had. Among the reporters covering the president's trip to Texas, Robert McNeil, who was working as a correspondent for NBC. On November 21st, he had flown to Fort Worth, where President Kennedy would deliver a speech the next morning. We got to Fort Worth late at night, and uh, I got to bed about 2 in the morning. Some of the Secret Service and some of the White House press corps went off to a nightclub, but I was just too beat and didn't go. I got up early the next morning and um, went down to the press room and we had the copies of the speech that the president was going to deliver later that day. We all marked up our speeches and and, uh, wrote a little bit for a little later. Then we went outside to the parking lot and the president spoke and then he worked the crowd. I was very close to him, almost at his shoulder as he went around working the crowd and it was really extraordinary the kind of what that crowd felt for him. I walked with him, right beside him, back into the lobby of the hotel, and there was a crowd on both sides of the lobby funneling into the entrance for the breakfast, held behind ropes, and uh, they tried to present Kennedy with a Stetson and boots, and he wouldn't put the hat on because he would never put a funny hat on. And he made the joke about, I'm sorry, Mrs. Kennedy isn't here, but it takes her a little longer to get ready. Anyway, I was standing in the kitchen, hotel kitchen, with Godfrey McHugh, who was his Air Force aide, who always traveled on Air Force One with him. And there was Mrs. Kennedy in the kitchen, waiting, waiting, waiting for the entrance. And finally, when everybody said, where's Jackie, where's Jackie, then made the entrance to thunderous applause, huge success, so and so. And uh, it was full of good fun. And I said to uh, Mo Levy, the cameraman, well, we, if nothing else happens today, we've got a story with Jackie. Um, why don't you take that back to the Fort Worth station, and then we'll um, then we'll move on. So we we got in the buses outside and went off to the press plane at Fort Worth. And in those days, the tradition was on the press plane: the minute the door is closed, the um, stewardesses, as we called them then, flight attendants, came down the aisle with a tray of Bloody Marys. Not everybody took one, but most of us did. The plane landed at Dallas because it was only like eight minutes. The plane landed on this bright, bright day. And finally, um, Air Force One pulled up. And uh, I will just never forget the sight of that. It was um, it was so bright, my eyes ached in the sunlight. And then when Mrs. Kennedy came out and with this uh, pink strawberry ice cream colored suit with the facings of navy blue and the little pillbox hat to match, her hair glossy in this bright light, the vivid color and everything, it just, it, it looked surreal, surreally colorful. It made the eyes ache to watch. And then when somebody at the foot of the plane handed her a huge bouquet of blood red roses, the color of those roses in that bright sunlight against the pink of the suit was really startling. 
So I followed them as they went along and shook hands along the fence. And as I said, you could get very close to them. And I was right beside Jackie when um, a hand reached through the chain link fence and broke one of the roses off and took it back inside. And there were high school kids with a banner over the fence that kind of lowered it on the precedent, but it was all very jocular and easy. And then um, they got into the limousine. He wanted to make a point, I think, when he took the bubble top off the limousine. He wanted to prove to the people of Dallas that he was, you know, glad to be there and was for Texans and, and uh, Dallasites. I'm at the station at KRLD. Things had gone very well on the trip. There had been really nothing out of the ordinary. Dan Rather was the Southwest Bureau Chief for CBS News. One of his assignments was to pick up film from a camera truck covering the presidential motorcade for editing at the local affiliate KRLD. It had been published in the newspaper what the motorcade route would be. He would take a parade route through downtown Dallas. And at a certain point, which was a railroad overpass just past, just past what we now know to be the Texas School Book Depository, the motorcade was basically to end there. That is, the parade part of it would end there. The motorcade would pick up speed and go to the trademark some distance from there where President Kennedy was to make his central speech in Dallas. And we had set up, at CBS, we'd set up along the parade route a few places where, because we were dealing with film, not videotape, with the photographer who was on a truck bed sort of thing, to film the motorcade, put people at pre-designated places where he could drop the film in a yellow shipping bag, as CBS News on the side of their old grapefruit bags. But we had set up these drop points for the film along the way, and everything was uh, you know, going really well. I leave here at and go to just beyond the overpass, which is where that'd be the last slow point the motorcade was going. I had a seat right in front of the first press bus. We started off in the motorcade, and we were about six cars behind the president's car. And being higher up, we could see over the uh, other cars and the Secret Service car and the pool car carrying the wire services and a couple of photographers. And uh, so in the early part, this is weird, it was the outskirts of Dallas were almost deserted. There were just a few people holding up signs. And I began to get a little drowsy. And uh, I had this daydream. And in my daydream, uh, somebody took a shot, fired a shot, and I got out of the bus and I chased the person who'd fired the shot. And then I, I sort of woke up and I said, come on, get real. And you know, there'd been a lot of stuff about some trouble expected in Dallas. And they'd got out every policeman, canceled all leaves, citizens given the right of citizens arrest, you know. They'd really put on the heavy security. And then we got in downtown Dallas, and the street ahead of the motorcade looked like a river whose banks were constantly shifting because people would swell out in the crowd and then swell back, and you wondered how the motorcade could get through them because they were weaving sinuously through this crowd. Amazing to see. And the reception was euphoric, unbelievable. And we all kept commenting on all the nice things people were saying and shouting. I was on the news desk. I was doing the KLIF news in the morning. And I was going to do at least uh, 10, 11 
12 and then head for the trademark. And my assignment was to cover Kennedy's speech out at the trademark on Stimmons Expressway. And Joe Long and Roy Nichols were the radio pool reporters that morning at Love Field. So I did my uh, reporting, getting the news ready, and I knew I was going to have to get out the door in a hurry and get out to the trademark. We got down to the end of the main street before, just before the turn into Dealey Plaza, and I got out my notebook and began making a few notes because in a few minutes at the merchandise mart or the trademark, I was going to have to do an NBC News on the hour, and I knew what pieces of the speech I wanted to do excerpt. And we just turned into Dealey Plaza, and I was just figuring what I would lead on when there was a bang, and we all said, what was that? Was that a backfire? Was that a firecracker? What was that? And there was time for us to say that, and then there was bang, bang, very close together, like that. And I said, those are shots. Stop the bus. That's when the phone rang, and Joe Long said, what do you know about shots being fired at the motorcade? And I was kind of stunned, and I said, I don't know, but I'll find out. So I hung up as fast as I could, called the Dallas Police Department, and Dorothy Plimpton was the woman that answered the phone in the dispatcher's office, and I said, Dorothy, this is Gary DeLon. What do you know? She said, yes, we did have reports that shots were fired, so I notified the DJ. I motioned to him through the giant window. I said, let's go. We had this giant beep, 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 as they did when bulletins were about to be announced, and I said, this KLIF bulletin... From Dallas, three shots reportedly were fired at the motorcade of President Kennedy today near the downtown section. KLIF News is checking out the report. We will have further reports. Stay tuned. As Gary DeLon became the first broadcaster to report the shooting on air, the veteran wire service reporter Merriman Smith of United Press International, who was traveling in the motorcade a few cars back, used a radio telephone to file his first bulletin four minutes after the shooting. In the CBS newsroom in New York, anchorman Walter Cronkite saw that initial report come in. I was actually uh, leaning over the teleprinter. There's a UP teleprinter at the moment the bulletin came. I was standing there looking at it when the bells rang and Merriman Smith's first bulletin came over. The shots rang out uh, on the motorcade. And then, of course, it went on from there. That's the next was the motorcade was veering off its route and then the motorcade seemed to be on the way to Parkland Hospital and so forth. It was a, uh, just a series of ever-mounting horror stories. In downtown Dallas, President Kennedy was shot today just as his motorcade left downtown Dallas. Mrs. Kennedy jumped up and grabbed Mr. Kennedy. She cried, oh no. The motorcade sped on. A photographer said he saw blood on the president's head. It was believed two shots were fired. Keep tuned to your NBC station for the later news. When that first bulletin came, the shots rang out. Uh, I shouted around the newsroom right away, something's happening in Dallas. I ripped the stuff off and was running into our general newsroom from our CBS evening newsroom and delighted with people coming the other way saying, come on, let's get on the air. Here is a bulletin from CBS News. In Dallas, Texas, three shots were fired at President Kennedy's motorcade in downtown Dallas. The first 10 minutes or so, we were on audio only. 
because we had to have a camera hot. And it takes a while to warm up a, a conoscopic lens and a camera and uh, the tubes. And uh, and we couldn't get on the air for about uh, on television for about 10 minutes. We will continue our story in a moment. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be Continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. I'm Brian Williams. Welcome back. When that news broke, I immediately called Frank Stanton, who was president of CBS. He was in a very important meeting. And his secretary said, yeah, I'm sorry he's not to be disturbed. Don Hewitt was then the producer of the CBS Evening News. I said, you better disturb him. She said, well, I'm not allowed to disturb him. I said, the president's just been shot. She said, well, he'll call you back. I said, you better call me back immediately because he may not be alive by the time he calls me back. Stanton called back and he said, get on the air and hold the air and don't put anything else on until we find out whether he's dead or alive. And then he called back a few minutes later and said, no, no, just don't get off the air no matter whether he is or he isn't. I didn't hear any shots. I didn't know that anything had gone wrong. But I thought I saw the president's limousine really speed past going quickly split, but it happened so quickly I wasn't even sure it was his limousine. But what I remember thinking is the rest of the motorcade was not coming, which indeed it didn't. So I I went running backward to see what I thought for some reason the motorcade's been held up. And beyond that overpass was chaos. People on the ground screaming, pointing, fathers covering their children. And the only thing I thought was, boy, whatever's happened here, I better get back to KRLD. The air was filled with the most incredible screams I've ever heard. It was as though there were a bunch of choirs all deliberately shrieking out of tune and cacophonously. It was just the hysterical, unbelievable sound echoing off all these buildings in the plaza. And so I knew really something had happened, but I didn't think he'd been hit. I thought somebody's fired a gun as a kind of demonstration. It was inconceivable to me. So I ran around the corner and I noticed that there were people on the grassy knoll who were sitting with their children bent down and sort of half covering their children. And I noticed there were policemen and plain closemen with guns up running up the hill. So I thought, geez, I better call NBC and tell them those shots were fired. And the first place they came to turned out to be the Texas Book Depository. So I went inside. There was another young man on a phone by a pillar. And he pointed into an office. And I went into an office. There was one of those old black phones with four clear lucite buttons. And two of them were lit up and two of them weren't. And then I got through to NBC in about 10 seconds in New York, the news desk. 
I said, there's McNeil in Dallas, urgent, urgent. And somebody said, just a minute. And he put the phone down and I was screaming into the phone, for God's sake, come on, come on. Anyway, I did a bulletin saying um, shots were fired as the president's motorcade passed through downtown Dallas. It is not known if the shots were directed at the president. People screamed and lay down in the grass, da, da, da. Then I signed off and I went outside. We went over to the policeman's motorcycle where the radio on the motorcycle was saying, taken to Parkland Hospital, severe head wounds. And I thought, oh, shit, you know, I'm supposed to be covering the president. And here I've gone off on this goose chase, chasing some gunman, and I'm miles away from the president. So I ran in front of the first car that came along and stopped it and opened the door. I said to the young guy, I'll give you five bucks if you drive me to Parkland Hospital. And he said, well, okay. I kept punching his arm, saying, drive faster, drive faster. NBC will pay any fines. Don't worry, go through red lights, anything. Nobody could have cared less because all the police cars were screaming the other way at 100 miles an hour past us. I got him to stop at a gas station, and I went in and did another bulletin to NBC saying he'd been hit in the head and taken to Parkland Hospital. Nobody knew what happened. Are we going to be invaded? Is there a whole fifth column sitting here ready to take over the country? You didn't know. You figured, is that the beginning of a revolution? I mean, are we going to survive this? You know, I think it's always so with, with us in the news business that two things happen. First of all, you're, you're struck with the enormity of the story, whatever it is. And immediately on top of that, uh, you turn professional. It's, uh, and, and your thoughts are on how you report the story and how you get it out. And then from that point on, it was incessant, you know, more and more phone calls. I fed 350 radio stations including the BBC and the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation. But after the uh, initial bulletin, and it was just bang, bang, bang from that point on, Kennedy and, and uh, the governor had been rushed to Parkland Hospital, and I got to the police department and began reporting. that It was uh, just chaotic. You can imagine how furious it had to be, and, and uh, no one knew anything. You, you looked for sources, and I was down the hallway from the homicide division. It was a uh, third floor or two, just like the, the press room. And everybody was on the phone and it was typically chaotic. That's when we realized that uh, this happened. We didn't think it could ever happen. And that's we, you know, we, we didn't take the reports in the newspaper and, the re and all that seriously. Were we uh, chaotic? Were we confused? Were we anxious? All of the above, but we um, we realized then that, that we were in a hell of a mess. All of us at CBS, and for that matter at KROD, said, you know, we have to find pictures. We're televisionists. You know, people had cameras in the crowd. Home movie cameras were not all that prevalent in 1963. And so we, while doing everything else, were making our calls and trying to see if we could find somebody who had still photographs, just, you know, Kodak camera and wouldn't it be terrific if somebody and we said to ourselves somebody had to be there with home movie cameras probably several somebody's eventually we got to Mr. Sapruder we said you know did you have pictures he said yes your heart begins to jump this guy's got pictures I have this is a home movie camera home movie camera do you remember getting much he said I've got the whole thing what do you mean you got the whole thing we said was, I was rolling the whole time. Well, where were you? And he described where he was, which was a very good position. Well, are you sure? Yes, we had that discussion. 
At any rate, his film had not been processed. And after the film was processed, we would have an opportunity to view it in the attorney's office. We got to the attorney's office. The attorney was very nice. And I caught, uh, seated in a chair in the outer office, was a guy named Dick Stalin. Dick was at Life magazine. At that time, they said, here's the arrangement. You're going to see the film and see it once. And uh, then after you've seen it, we'll talk about possible arrangements. And we went in. They turned the projector on. And there it was, the whole assassination, you know, frame by frame by frame. All went by fairly quickly, but it was all there. And as soon as the film ended, I leaped out of my chair and I went to KRLD, where we were, the CBS coverage was emanating from. I told New York that I'd seen this film and told them what I'd seen, even before I got through it. They said, just hold it, we're coming to you right away. And I sat down and from memory, uh, described what I'd seen. I said, look, I, I think I need to get back to the attorney's office because Stolly is there. I got back to the attorney's office and uh, the attorney said, well, we've sold the film. And I said, well, what do you mean you've sold the film? You can't sell the film. Well, we, we said, I told you I'd be back. And uh, he said, well, uh, Life magazine made a preemptive bid. The word was that they gave $50,000 for it. I got to the hospital just a few minutes after the motorcade and the pool car. All the rest of the press had gone off to the merchandise mart and the buses, and they didn't turn up for a long time. So I went into the emergency room, and there's the emergency room desk, and there was Merriman Smith of the uh, UP dictating the story that won him the Pulitzer Prize that day, and the nurses all on his arms saying, you can't use this phone, you can't use this phone, and Smitty just went on dictating the story. I went up, and there in a little anteroom through another swing door were two payphones that nobody'd noticed, and I grabbed one of them, and I had it for the rest of the day, and I got through to NBC, and then later, Bob Pierpoint of CBS turned up, and he had the one next to me. And uh, we would get interns or doctors or nurses to hold the phone while we went in to talk to whoever we could, the priest who delivered the raft rites to the various aides. No one would say anything. I said to the priest, if you deliver the last rites, does that mean he's dead? And he would say, I delivered the last rites. And that's all he would say. From Dallas, Texas, the flash, apparently official, President Kennedy died at 1 p.m. Central Standard Time, 2 o'clock Eastern Standard Time, some 38 minutes ago. I thought he was going to lose it, but he didn't. When he put those glasses down and choked up, I figured, uh-oh, where's Severide? I got to get somebody in there right away. Because I didn't know whether Waller was going to recover from it, but pro that he is, he did. But I think that moment, all of America shared that. They all felt what he felt. They felt the same despair, the same, my God, what do we do now? And I think there was probably a tear in a hundred million eyes as there was in Waller's. Well, I did have some trouble getting the words out, but we and... The news and television news, particularly, but all the news people operate very much like emergency personnel, fire police, hospitals. Our adrenaline flows faster. We've got a job to do. We're doing the job and we're concentrating on that rather than the emotional impact. And we find out now that there's a psychological uh, trauma that uh, people who have to do that sort of job go through. And I think we go through it in, in news, too. 
And not until you have to hit that punchline that he's dead does it come to you, the full emotional meaning. And that's what hit me at the time. The Secret Service came through and said, everybody out, everybody out. And Pierpoint and I ducked down. There were glass panels in the door that swung out into the main lobby. We just ducked down on our phones. I'm talking to Huntley and Frank McGee in New York. He's talking to Cronkite on the other phone. And they cleared everybody out. Well, I'm in a little uh, small uh, waiting room where emergency patients wait to be treated. There are a few policemen who were the only ones left in the long corridor leading to the room with double swinging doors behind which we assume the president's body is being placed in the bronze coffin, which was taken in about half an hour ago, and uh, from, from which we expected to come out shortly. And then we peeked out, and here's Lyndon Johnson coming up, white as anything, surrounded by Secret Service men and aides. And we both got the phones, and we burst out like this. Johnson looked as though we were about to shoot him. I mean, oh, my God. And the Secret Service pushed us out of the way, and Johnson just bowled his way past us. He knew us both very well. And bowled his way past us, went out. So we reported that he'd gone off. And then later, Mrs. Kennedy came out, and we were, I was in the lobby as she came by with her hand on the coffin and the blood all over her skirt. And this extraordinary, dazed look in her eyes that everybody saw. We had a edict at the time that we all had to wear jackets at all times. And that's a proper, of course, from a studio setting. You should be. But I had not been wearing my jacket, of course, uh, in the office. And uh, my tie was part and done. My sleeves were rolled up. I went through the entire afternoon. Then it was 7 o'clock or so before I got first relief when Charles Collingwood came in to relieve me for a while. Meanwhile, my secretary had apparently put my jacket on the back of my chair. I didn't realize that I was the tie slightly undone, sleeve rolled up, shirt sleeves, until I got up at 7 o'clock or whatever it was. And the second thing was that at that point, I went into my little glass-enclosed office on the edge of the newsroom. I walked into my office and wanted to call Betsy at home and hear a friendly voice and, you know, have a chance to get some mutual sympathy for our plight. I found all six buttons on both lines, both phones, lighted, of course. I, oh, I can't call out if I wanted to. And just at that moment, one of them came black and I picked it up quickly. Well, as things do when a PBX board jams, the line, the phone call came right through to me from the outside and it was some rather cultured voice on the phone saying, hello, I'd like to speak to somebody at CBS, please. And I said, this is CBS. Well, I would like to register a complaint. How terrible it is for CBS to have on the air at this time that Walter Cronkite crying his crocodile tears when everybody knows he hated John Kennedy. Well, I have this as the first words I've heard other than directorial cues practically all afternoon. I, I was shaking almost with emotion and rage, and I said, uh, excuse me, madam, would you tell me your name? And she gave me her name and, was, and her address, Upper Park Avenue, and I said, madam, you're speaking to Walter Cronkite, and you, madam, are a damned idiot. I, it was, the words were a little even, even worse than that, and I slammed the phone up. Sometimes television is a theater, Sometimes it's a newsroom. Sometimes it's a sports stadium. Sometimes it's a chapel. All of America 
came to their television sets. And in effect, not actually, but in effect, all of America held hands. And Walter Cronkite told them, God's in his heaven, all's right with the world, take it easy, we'll get out of this. Everything's going to be all right. That is the best use of television. Over the course of the next four days, network television made the unprecedented decision to suspend all other programming and go wall-to-wall in their coverage. Millions of Americans sat transfixed in front of their televisions, watching the funeral service in their collective grief. Mrs. Jacqueline Kennedy and her daughter, Caroline, are now going forward to the casket. Some people are in tears. As those who were alive then will tell you today, it felt as if our nation was coming apart. The new president, Lyndon Johnson, famously later said his biggest worry on the day of the assassination was, as he put it, when would the missiles be coming? Tensions were running hot at the height of the Cold War, and no one knew for sure that the assassination wasn't part one of an attempt to attack or overthrow our country. While it wasn't that, in many ways it was the end of our national innocence and the start of a tumultuous period in modern American history. I'm Brian Williams. For more information about this episode and our series, please visit our website, weinterruptthisbroadcast.org. Now please listen to this special message from Bill Curtis about the great work of the Broadcasters Foundation of America. Every day, broadcasters bring us the information and entertainment that enriches our lives and often saves lives. It's not only the person on air. It's the producers, engineers, management, sales, marketers, camera operators, and more. For more than 70 years, the Broadcasters Foundation of America, a 501c3 charity, has been a safety net, providing financial assistance to broadcasters and their families in acute need from a debilitating illness, tragic accident, or unthinkable catastrophe. Whether a retired broadcaster who can't afford life-saving medications, a family struggling to make ends meet after a crippling accident, or severe damage from a hurricane to the home of a broadcaster in need, the Broadcasters Foundation has always been there to help those in our industry who need it most. Now more than ever, the Broadcasters Foundation is in need of your donations to continue its charitable mission. Please consider a donation today at broadcastersfoundation.org. That's broadcastersfoundation.org. On behalf of all our broadcasters in all areas of our industry, we thank you.